We had trick-or-treaters this year. We were not expecting it. I don't think they were probably. Uh, Their parents probably liked what we gave them, but the kids probably did not. (laughs) It's not like kale chips or something. No, they're they're chocolate. It's chocolate. It's just 50% less sugar than... I think if if it has chocolate, you did your job. I think you should have given them just like some additional sugar. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, despite widespread criticism, Mayor Latoya Cantrell continues the hunt for designers and builders for a new city hall on the site of the municipal auditorium in Armstrong Park. And it's election season again. We'll look at what and who is on the ballot. COVID cases remain low in schools. We'll get the latest numbers. And funding for the new jail facility known as Phase 3 is at risk. We'll also take a look at the race for Orleans Parish Sheriff. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, contributing reporter Jordan Hirsch. Hey, Jordan. Hello. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hi, Marta. Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Morning. All right, Jordan, last time you were here, you were talking about the Municipal Auditorium. Specifically, there was a July meeting with Mayor Latoya Cantrell. Can you remind us what happened then and catch us up? Sure. Uh, in a July meeting, the mayor met with the Save Our Souls Coalition, which is a couple of dozen groups who came together to oppose her plan to move City Hall into the Municipal Auditorium in Armstrong Park. And the coalition went into that meeting hoping to persuade the mayor to reconsider the change of use of the building. Um, But what was really clear is that in the meeting at the time was that the mayor was fully committed to that project. And in light of the, uh, you know, there were Uh, second line in protests. There have been a number of of sort of large public um, objections to this plan, including by members of the city council. So what the administration did in July was they said, okay, we're going to put this process on hold for 90 days and telling SOS, if you can come back to us in 90 days with a viable alternative for that building, including uh, not only the complete cost of renovating it, but operating it and maintaining it, then we'll consider that. But if you don't, if you're not able to provide that, then we have to proceed as planned because FEMA will not allow us to change course in the absence of that counter proposal. You know, at the time, uh, I think members of the coalition were not convinced that it was a good faith uh, invitation to collaborate, but they understood that it was uh, incumbent on them to get some particulars together and to demonstrate the, um, the nature of the opposition to this, which is really citywide and across a number of demographics. It's, it's really hard to find people who think this is a good idea. And so what happened um, without any notification was that the city uh, reactivated its uh, solicitation for bids to convert the building. And they did that uh, without contacting the coalition. And they also did it uh, in a way that 
extends the deadline into the end of January of 2022. Um, it's my understanding they did so after Hurricane Ida and so surely had some legitimate uh, reasons for for not being able to, to delve into that, uh, particularly because it appears the municipal auditorium may have sustained additional damage. Um, however, the most recent delay is only the most recent delay. I mean, this thing has been dragging uh, for years. And so what has resulted is a very, very short time frame to get the plans for the project, whatever it's going to be, approved by FEMA, and then get the work done. The work has to be complete by the 18th anniversary of Katrina uh, in August of 2023. And so now the mayor appears committed to this concept for the building, and there's a, a compressed amount of time to bring it to resolution. However, uh, the political opposition has been such that the city council unanimously took action to block the start to basically prevent the administration from moving forward. Mm. And they sort of were trying to figure out what they could do over the summer when they realized all their constituents were really uh, bothered by the mayor's plan. Um, and two council members who are seeking citywide election introduced motions uh, to you know rally to the majority of, of voters and say, we're gonna change some zoning regulations here to prevent the project from moving forward. So now the zoning restrictions are sort of in process of being set up. One of them is already in effect, uh, but the clock is ticking for the FEMA money and, and there's still no uh, indication from the administration that they're willing to change course on what they want to build. So I want to talk about that, the FEMA money in a minute, because we're going we dis to discuss FEMA money is also at issue later in the criminal justice um, beat with Nick about the new jail facility. but. First, I want to ask about the 90 days that um, the mayor gave the SOS group and um, they're tasked with trying to come up with some alternative. What did they do in those 90 days? So a few things. And um, in speaking to them this week, they said that they did encounter some delays in the aftermath of Ida and, and dealing with COVID. So their work is, their proposal is, is not complete, but they've They've been at it for months and they've done some compelling work, particularly around uh, soliciting from people across the city ideas about what they want to see. They've done uh, a survey that hundreds of people have responded to and they did a number of in-person meetings that were also streamed online that hundreds of others participated in. And what they've, what they've done essentially is establish um, you know, what appears like a, 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 a wide consensus that, that that space needs to be oriented around uh, culture. It's, it's on Congo Square, the historic gathering place for enslaved people. That is really the wellspring for so much of Black New Orleans culture and just New Orleans culture. Um, and so they've, they've established what uh, public opinion is. So there's, there's a number of, of people in the coalition who run their own cultural organizations, people who are the heads of social aid and pleasure clubs or black masking Indian groups, nonprofits, and they, they withheld their own opinions. You know, what they did for the first few months was just go out and solicit other people's ideas. And so to me, it was a very credible uh, community engagement process. And what they've done at the very least is established a template for what the city could do if it wanted to um, 
you know, figure out what, what, what else to do with the building. And so what the, the coalition is also has additional plans coming down the pike, I think pretty soon, um, but they're not ready to release publicly, but um, they are going about this as, as deliberately as they can to set up uh, an idea of, of how this could work if, if people were uh, invited to the table. And these are people that are just volunteering their time. Are they funded in any way, substantially, by anyone? No, it's a great point. Um, some of them are retired. Some of them are simply, you know, working ninety hours a week. You know, trying to balance all this. It's really been a pretty remarkable grassroots effort. Um, and there are some seasoned organizers like Cheryl Austin from the Greater Treme Consortium. She's been, you know, fighting the city on Armstrong Park stuff for decades. But there are other people uh, who are not typically engaged in politics who are all in on this issue. And um, so, no, no substantial outside funding that I'm aware of and also notably no resources from the city. Right. It almost seems like given the pace of the way things move and major construction projects, approvals, design approvals, the whole the whole gamut of how this would have to run. Um, I guess talk about the FEMA money and and how the deadlines associated with that, because that comes up again in the phase three building that we're going to talk about in a minute. But at this stage, it's almost impossible to get it done. To get anything done, even have, even if there were no opposition to anything and everyone was green lighting at all, I can't even imagine. So lay it out, what, what the FEMA money is and, and what the timeline is. Sure. So uh, what FEMA calls the period of performance for this uh, Katrina money expires on the 18th anniversary of the storm on um, August of 2023. And the idea there is that the money not only needs to be spent, but the, the construction itself should be complete. And yeah, as you say, f- for that to happen, it's, it's hard to imagine, right? Um, it's hard to imagine if we don't even have clarity on uh, what the plans, what, of what it is we're building. Um, the idea that we would be done building it in 19 months, uh, it's, it's hard to see that working out. Um, it is possible for the city to seek an extension from FEMA on the August 2023 deadline. According to the mayor in that July meeting with SOS, you know, in which she said some things that FEMA contradicted. So, um, you know, we'll see if, uh, if this is really how it goes down. But she said it's possible for the city to apply for an extension of that deadline for a project that is under active construction uh, at the end of next year. Mm. So. A year from now, we may know that the August 2023 deadline can be extended. However, for the next year, uh, you know, the city really needs to be, uh, you know, going as fast as it can to get get as far as it can uh, to make that possible. And with, uh, you know, with the council working and the mayor working in different directions on what to put in that facility, um, it's hard to think that, that they're going to be able to, to get there. What does seem potentially possible, and maybe I'm wrong, is er- earlier in this process, a lot of people were talking about, at the time they were using the phrase, I believe, white box um, renovation, um, which is basically just 
fixing, fixing up the building, fixing the problems with the building, and bringing it more or less into working order so that it can then later be renovated into something else. Um, or, or perhaps just, you know, uh, turned back into an auditorium. But from your story, it sounds like FEMA says that that would be something they would be fine with, but the mayor is claiming something else, right? Yeah, that's a great point. So this is something that both SOS and members of the council have, have called on the mayor to do that she so far um, has uh, held this position that FEMA won't allow her to do. So this actually came up under the Landry administration as well. The city basically uh, has permission from FEMA as a default of, of the way this money is, is set up to flow to replace the stuff that was damaged by Katrina. You know, and that's complicated with the municipal auditorium because uh, the Katrina damage was really only lightly patched over and it deteriorated quite a lot. And, and there's you know, many millions of dollars of damage to the auditorium that FEMA will not have to reimburse the city for. And so the argument from SOS and from some members of the council is, as Charles said, go in and make as many repairs as you can with the money that is available as soon as possible. And, you know, that would seem to make sense. Um, and yet the administration's position is that, well, well, first it's that FEMA won't let us do it. The mayor has also suggested other rationales for avoiding that course of action, saying that there's, it's going to cost so much more to bring the facility back online than FEMA will reimburse us for, that if we go in there and start patching stuff up, but we can't finish that job and we don't know what it's going to be used for, then that would be, you know, <laughs> what? I don't know, but not a thing that they want to pursue. Um, and so... The, uh, the argument on the other side is, well, well FEMA will allow you just to, to fix the stuff that they're offering you money to fix, and um, we can figure out the use subsequently, and, and that would allow time for community input. I mean, the way that this FEMA deadline is working is not only in terms of, oh, man, can we find a contractor in time? It's also, well, we don't have time to really listen to what people want to do. We have to make a choice and run with it, right? And so this approach would, in theory, uh, get as much construction accomplished as possible before the deadline. And in parallel with that, you'd have a chance to, um, you know, to perhaps resource SOS to, to do even more outreach and so on to, to figure out ultimately what kind of funds could be available from other sources to make the best use of the facility. Comes to mind for me, obviously, from my perspective, is the city has been able to negotiate landmark settlements with FEMA post Katrina. Obviously, the schools package, which was much larger, we're talking billions of dollars. It's not the scale of the municipal auditorium here, but you know there there is leeway within FEMA for certain projects. And here we are, more than a decade out, and that clearly hasn't happened. So that that's just what what comes to mind for me is that there has been leeway in the past, but seems like we're seeing a just just a lot of stalling. Yeah, you know, my the impression I get is that that FEMA is like, you know, take this, take the money, <laughs> you know. Um, they, I think, look, I mean, FEMA and Katrina is these are always going to be linked in in people's minds, and I think that they would just assume that their resources be uh, utilized, and, and so that yeah, they, um, I think that they want to see it used productively. 
And it's really been both the Land Drew administration and the Cantrell administration who for various reasons haven't uh, put that together. Okay, great story, Jordan, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens, I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are contributing reporter Jordan Hirsch, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, the Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The New Orleans Press Club just awarded eight Excellence in Journalism Awards to The Lens, including first and second place for government and political reporting, and first place for this very podcast you're listening to now. The Lens is a nonprofit public media. You can tell because of the high quality of what you read each day. You can tell because of the stories and research and doggedness that we use to bring you the news that matters. And you can also tell because we ask you directly to support this service that makes such a difference in your life. Your investment supports high quality news, in-depth reporting, and connections to your neighbors and the world. Please make a contribution today at thelensnola.org. And thank you. Michael, there's an election coming up in about a week. What are New Orleans voters going to see on the ballot? Yeah, it's election time. Um, you know, a couple you know reminders off the bat with this election. Um, the first thing is that we're actually voting a month later um, than we were supposed to this year because of Hurricane Ida. Um, this was supposed to happen back in October. The other thing to keep in mind is that again, Louise, uh, the, the way that the elections run here. Um, in these elections, if, if no candidate gets more than 50% of the vote, then the two top candidates are going to move on to a runoff election, and that's going to happen um, on December 11th. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the stakes um, with a lot of the candidates here. Um, so statewide, we've got four constitutional amendments on the ballot. Constitutional amendments, that they're, they're often confusing, um, but I've been doing this for a few years, and I find these to be particularly confusing. So um, I would encourage people... Um, LA Illuminator um, has got put out some re- really great information on this. Par Louisiana has a good rundown of these um, constitutional amendments. But you know, just to run through them very quickly, um, probably the most high profile one is constitutional amendment number one. And basically this would change um, the way that sales taxes are collected in, in the state of Louisiana. Right now that responsibility, you know, for the most part falls to um, individual parishes. Um, to collect their own sales taxes. Under constitutional amendment number one, if it's passed, it would, it would move to a centralized state system where the state would collect all sales taxes and then distribute those back to localities, back to parishes and city governments. Now, Mayor Latoya Cantrell has, has been pretty vocal in her opposition against this constitutional amendment. On the pro side is that this would simplify things. The reason why you would wanna do this is that right now, if you're a business that does um, that makes sales online in, in 30 different Louisiana parishes. Right now, you need to go through you know 30 different um, sales tax procedures. Now, the argument for this constitutional amendment would be that it would simplify the process for these businesses, so they would only have to pay once. They would only have to go through one single process to pay all their sales taxes. The reason why Cantrell and others are opposed to this, you know, especially in New Orleans, is that they're worried about 
the state having fiscal control, actual control over money, over tax revenues that the city relies on. You know, they say that in theory, this won't be a political process. In theory, this should be a pretty easy administrative role. Um, But they're worried that in practice, you know, politics might enter this. You know, New Orleans is a blue, blue city in a red state. Often the city of New Orleans is clashing with the state government. Um, And again, there's concerns that, you know, politics may enter the fray and that may affect, you know, whether New Orleans is getting all the tax revenue that it needs and and deserves. And Marta, you wrote a story with Michael on Amendment 1. Can you talk about locally who is in support? Yeah, so locally, um, you know, I think this is something that business owners are interested in um, just for simplification reasons. Um, But who I've been talking to more are members of the Orleans Parish School Board who seemed, um, you know, a handful of them seemed pretty enthused by the notion um, when they were uh, given a presentation by a legislative uh, representative. Um, Just in terms of, you know, specifically, I spoke with Carlos Servigan, who's a representative on the Orleans Parish School Board. Um, He he thinks that this would be, you know, potentially financially advantageous for the board. Um, He's a business owner himself. He says, you know, this system is so complicated that I think there's missed um, sales tax collection out there. And if there's any way that this could bring us more sales tax, like absolutely, this is something I would be for if we could get more funding for kids in schools. Right. Um, Michael, back to you on this. So then we have constitutional amendment number two, um, which I would say is the most complicated of the four um, constitutional amendments. Um, it, It basically would lead to a number of changes to the state income tax um, deduction system. You know, the, the, the kind of end game of this is that, you know, most people in businesses, your taxes would either stay more or less the same or come down slightly. Um, in terms of revenue collected, the, the amount of money the state is getting is expected to go down slightly, but not a very significant amount. You know, again, this is a really complicated one with a lot of moving parts. Um, So I'm not going to try and explain all of them right now. Um, I'd say that one reason I've seen that people uh, are opposing this is that there is a, um, a trigger in the law that if the state, you know, vastly exceeds its, its revenue expectations, it would automatically um, lead to uh, um, reductions in the income tax rate for, for uh, high income earners. Um, So that's been one, argument I've seen against it. But again, this is a very detail oriented one. So this is one where I would really encourage people to to read a little bit more about. Uh, the next one is, is a little more straightforward. Um, it has to do with levy districts. So levy, levy districts are these state created boards that um, help manage, you know, levies all around the state. Um, and basically all boards, all levy boards that were created prior to 2006 have been able to raise a small amount of property taxes without getting uh, without without a vote, without a, a having residents approve um, that that tax increase. Um, but there have been five levy districts created after 2006 that don't have that unilateral tax increase authority. Um, so, if Constitutional Amendment Number Three is passed, those five uh, uh, levy districts would also have that ability to raise that small amount of property tax. None of those are in Orleans Parish, so um, wouldn't affect our tax rates here. Um, you know, these are uh, levy districts kind of scattered all throughout the state, but um, it's just five of them on um, the ability to raise a small amount of property tax without uh, voter approval. The last one is, 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 I actually think is the most interesting one. Um, and it's basically, 
if passed, it, it would allow the, the, the state government to take money out of dedicated state funds um, to help cover a financial shortfall. So, you know, Louisiana, New Orleans, I mean, there's a, a lot of dedicated funds in this state. Um, you know, a deep ingrained, you know, distrust of government has led to every time, you know, you want to raise a tax, it, it's much easier to gain support for that by saying it will be deposited into this special fund that can only be used for uh, uh, road work, or it'll be put in this fund that can only be spent on firefighters or whatever it might be. Um, but having all those dedicated funds, the, the downside to that, I mean, it, it can increase trust that your money is going to the right place. The downside is that during you know budget crises, the state doesn't have a lot of flexibility you know, to move that money around. Um, and so you know, it, what we saw during, you know, the coronavirus crisis, for example, is that, you know, the places with the least amount of dedicated funds were, were healthcare and education. And so because all these other funds were dedicated, it kind of forced the state to make cuts in those areas where the money was a little more flexible. Um, yeah. And, or, or the last time we had a major crisis in the state, um, you know, the go-to solution is to, is to, to, to raise sales taxes. Which is, you know, going to hit the, the hit hit the lowest income earners the hardest. Right, right. Um, so, you know, the, the, the argument for um, would be to, you know, increase flexibility to allow, you know, just better budget management by the state during crises. Um, the argument against is mainly that, you know, if money is being put in a dedicated fund for a dedicated purpose, you know, that was done for a reason, and we shouldn't, you know, allow more room for the government to be moving those funds around. You know, again, you know, a lot of this, I think, depends on your level of trust in the state government um, and whether um, they would use this, you know, responsibly. I'd say from a uh, journalistic standpoint, one thing I'm thinking about is that, you know, during a crisis, it's hard to track all this stuff. So, you know, it does leave room open during crises for a lot of money to get moved around. Um, you know, during a time when it's hard to pay attention. So, you know, that one's really interesting. Again, all four of these I would recommend people read up on. Um, but those are the statewide elections. And then, you know, we've got a, a bunch of local elections up. I'll just talk about, you know, kind of what I think is going to be the most the most interesting stuff here. I, I think that the sheriff race is an interesting one. Seeing this kind of um, very significant campaign for this kind of reformer sheriff position, that'll be an interesting one to watch. Probably the, the biggest one to watch is uh, the city council at large division two race. Um, this was uh, formally held by Jason Williams before he was elected as district attorney in, in 2020. It, it's now between three candidates. Uh, it was it used to be four candidates. Um, Councilman Jared Brastet was running for the seat uh, yeah. before getting a DUI charge uh, in, in October. Um, he, he's still on the ballot, but he, he isn't actively running anymore isn't really a viable candidate at this point. Although, you know, as we talked about, his presence on the ballot will, will probably help push this into a runoff. Um, um, the, so the other three candidates, uh, we've got J.P. Morrell, former... Um, former state senator. He's a, a very well-known entity and and long seen as the, you know, kind of the front runner in the race. You know, as, as Michael mentioned, I think that I think that Br Brissett still being on the ballot is probably gives a good chance to one um, one of the other candidates of going into a runoff with Morrell. Yeah, um, and, and so the candidate you know kind of that comes after JP would be uh, Kristen Palmer, who's currently a, a district level uh, council person. She's run a pretty you know aggressive campaign. You know that's really. The negative about J.P. Morrell, um, you know, earlier on when, when Jared Brissett was still in the race, um, they came together and basically said, 
pick one of us as long as you don't pick JP Morrell. Um, so they kind of formed this alliance around. Uh, yeah, they endorsed each other. They endorsed each other, and so you know, I, you know, Kristen is is you know obviously gunning for the seat, gunning for JP Morrell, and I think her strategy at this point is trying to to sneak this into a runoff, and then you know trying to really make the case um, for herself at that point. I think she's trying to align herself. She's selling herself more as a, a grassroots candidate and has, has pitched J.P. Morrell as this, uh, you know, uh, lobbyist who's running with, with lobbyist money. Um, so that's kind of the, the dynamic that she is pushing. Um, and then the last can- candidate is uh, Bart Everson. Um, he was uh, uh, running um, the, the Green Party as a Green Party candidate. He's kind of an outsider in this. He hasn't been, you know, part of you know that that major conversation for the most part um although i do know people who are really excited about his platform um you know he's talked about things like a green new deal for new orleans um obviously is very you know active on the issue of climate change renewable energy you know in, in a city like new orleans all of those are, are obviously very pressing issues um you know we'll see uh, you know just driving around new orleans watching tv and listening to the radio i'm not seeing the same presence um from him that i'm seeing from jp and Kristen. so we'll see if he can drum up enough support to sneak into that runoff but uh hmm. he should at the very least take some votes away from jp and and, and encourage a runoff here so so that, that's kind of what's going on and at, at large division two um, and then the last, you know, the, the, the other local race I would kind of look at here is the is Orleans Parish Assessor. Um, Errol Williams has been um, our tax assessor for 10 years uh, now, coming up on 10 years. And he's been in the news in the past few years, some, some controversial moves around business tax cuts, some very popular moves this year around uh, residential tax cuts. But the candidates opposing him, um, I've read in, into them, it, it, it's a little hard to understand uh, from what I've seen how the functioning of that office would change significantly um, through one of these other uh, uh, candidates. Uh, you know, again, it's a very technical office. A lot of, you know, what they do is is not ideologically based. It, you know, a lot of it is, is math and assessment. So uh, again, it, it can be a hard election to run, but the position itself is super, super important um, and, and can have a huge effect on, on affordability, on the city's revenue, you know, on on enforcing short-term rental rules, on a whole host of things. So it's an important position. Um, so so don't let that one pass you by. I'd say those are probably the the, the highest profile elections. I don't know, Charles, if there are other any others. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's of course the mayor too, but you know, as as we we've already mentioned, she does she does, she does not have any big name candidates running against her. Right. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Marta, we talked to you already about one of the um, impacts of, of the election coming up in Amendment 1 on schools, but now what's going on with uh, COVID? So our COVID um, numbers have been pretty steady over the last couple of weeks. Um, 40 cases, 275 quarantines. Um, you know, once the district corrected that reporting error, we're seeing more realistic, more realistic quarantine numbers now that you know, make sense in that ratio of more than one kid getting quarantined for one case. But those numbers are staying low. And then obviously our, you know, exciting news this week is that children age five to 11 are now eligible to get the vaccine. So um, last night, the district held a town hall on that with um, Dr. Avegno, the city's health director um, and several other doctors. Uh, There were a lot of good questions from parents out there. 
we are going to roll that up into a, a guide and information for people that'll be out on the website um, so they can take a look there. And basically the district is just, you know, excited to get this rolling. Um, I know they had hoped to start giving vaccinations to young students this Saturday on the 6th, but they're not going to be able to pull that off because the approval came midweek. So they are going to do their first um, clinic first five to 11 year olds um, and, and students of any age can come on November 13th. So what, what's their capacity? How many how many kids could they serve in a day? You know, they didn't give a solid number on that, but I, I know on the 13th, I think they're gonna set up at several sites. Um, I know the first one's gonna be at Arthur Ashe from I believe 10 to um, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. It sounds like we're gonna be getting a lot of shots in the state. So I'd assume they'd be able to keep a pretty good pace. Also the um, children's doses are only a third of the adult doses. so. Any sort of math involved there, maybe we're getting a, you know, a good number of doses. Right. They want this to be promoted. They want people to use this. Right. Uh, they don't want kids missing school. That's, that's one of the big parts about this is if you are vaccinated and you are exposed to someone, you would no longer have to miss school um, as long as you're asymptomatic. So shots in arms means more kids can, can be in school every day um, instead of doing these, you know, rotating quarantines that we're seeing. Right. I guess I kind of wonder, you know, is, is, is there something happening internally where they're saying, you know, they're saying to themselves, well, we're going to make it as easy as possible for people to get vaccines, for kids to get vaccines. Now vaccine coverage, the whole K through 12 spectrum, five to 18, and we're going to make it difficult on people who aren't getting vaccines by having these required quarantines. So, you know, I, I, I'm just wondering if there's, this would be internal debate, so we wouldn't really know, but I, I just wonder, um, you know, at some point, if, if, if they don't get the rates up where they want them, if they're going to consider that policy. Yeah, you know, it'd be really interesting to see, and, and you know, because of Hurricane Ida, we still don't actually know the vaccination rate of the district's employees, which, you right. know, they they made that requirement. So I think probably you're right. Once we see some of these numbers come back, I guess by the holidays is when, you know, is a realistic time that five to 11 year olds could be fully vaccinated. Um, right. That maybe we'd see a little more discourse on that. All right, great. Thank you, Marta. Thanks. Nick, in criminal justice, there was a hearing this week on the long-running jail consent decree, and it came out that federal funding set aside for the controversial phase three mental health building may be at risk. What's happening? So at the hearing, what came out was, was the judge raised concerns that that uh, funding for the for this new phase three jail facility, which we've, we've talked about a lot, and it is um, being built by the city uh, despite their opposition to it uh, because of a federal judge's order. Funding for that is could be in trouble because the city's own timeline for building the, the facility uh, runs past a FEMA deadline um, for this for this funding that that they were supposed to get from from Hurricane Katrina. So that deadline is August 29th, uh, twenty twenty three. The city is now saying that the building won't be completed until um, uh, January of twenty twenty four. So at this hearing, a, a lawyer who is kind of an expert in FEMA matters and has worked for the sheriff's office uh, basically told the judge that right now what what we're hearing from FEMA is that that if this timeline if this is what it is, they're not going to get the funding. Um, so, you know, that's that's around $40 million that taxpayers would be on the hook for, um, that, that kind of everyone was under the impression uh, would be taken care of um, by FEMA. That was sort of a, a new development and an already, already involved and, and confusing, you know, battle over, over this jail facility. 
And the city is already saying about, they're talking about $15 million being too much. Yeah, so uh, last year, the city, you know, the city had agreed to build this facility back in 2017 after a lot of debate over it um, and had really been ordered to move forward um, during the Cantrell administration. And she had actually, her, her administration had been, had been providing updates to the court on how they were moving forward with this, with this jail facility. And then last year, they decided pretty abruptly that they didn't want to build it anymore. Um, and the reasons they gave to the court were that um, given the, the revenue losses from the COVID-19 pandemic, this jail facility was now too expensive, um, both the $15 million that they were going to need to cover for the construction costs and then you know, ongoing um, uh, funding for, for its operation. So about, they estimate about $9 million a year. There's lots over that, you know, as well as the fact that they say the jail population has gone down significantly, that this is, is no longer necessary, and that also now mental health care is, has improved to the degree where, where, it's, where it's not necessary. So cost has all, already been an issue here, um, and they've been saying that it, that is too expensive. This was when, and this was when, you know, they thought they were going to be getting this $40 million in, in FEMA money. Yeah, and now we're looking at a situation where local taxpayers theoretically could be on the hook for up to $51 million for this thing, um, which, you know, which is sev several, several times uh, larger than the amount of money they were concerned about in the first place. So it's August 29th, 2023, which is the 18th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Similar to what uh, the deadline that's happening in uh, in Jordan's story about uh, uh, the municipal auditorium, um, can you explain like what what FEMA expects by that deadline? There's this this term substantial completion. Yeah. So according to the lawyer who who testified at this hearing, substantial completion is basically completion. He said that it needs to be basically being utilized for whatever the intended purpose is, um, which in this case would be you know, a mental health care facility in, in the jail. You know, I don't think that they can have like a half-built building and say, you know, we're almost there, you know, just give us the money. From what I gathered at the hearing, the, no one has reached out to FEMA yet and been like, we're definitely not going to get this done in time. Can you give us some assurance? But he did say that the last time they spoke to FEMA, that, that FEMA basically said, this is the deadline and, you know, we're not we're not doing extensions. This is kind of the, the hard, hard cutoff. So... Yeah, it, it's hard to know what, what exactly uh, people will do under the circumstances that, that this isn't built. I mean, it's also interesting because the city is basically doing everything in its power to to not build this building. Um, and they are under a federal court order to do so. Some of what they've been doing have, has caused delays and has actually, you know, their deadline was prior to this, uh, you know, their, their projected completion date was prior to this FEMA deadline for for a while, um, but given their their uh, attempts to, to halt construction, it's been pushed back several times. And it's kind of an a, a interesting you know, dilemma for both the city and for everyone, because on the one hand, if taxpayers are gonna have to pay for this building, the city has a, actually a much better argument about it being too burdensome uh, in terms of cost. On the other hand, they're sort of the ones who have pushed the deadline back so far that, that, they, that they may not get the money. Um, and, you know, it's going to ultimately be, I think, uh, unless the, the appellate court steps in and, and, you know, grants the city their, 
uh, attempts to back out of the facility. It's going to be up to the federal judge whether or not he he does he does anything to to give them relief and. It certainly doesn't seem like he has any intention to. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics coming up. This money kind of came out of a, when it was when it was first allocated. It was for specific projects, and then you know, due to various things that happened over the years, it was kind of put into a, a large criminal justice pool of money, uh, of FEMA money. Uh, but at this point, um, I would think that that you know, even if what the city wants to happen happens at the appellate level. Um, they they have precious little time to reallocate this money to some other project before it goes poof, right? <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's a really good point, and you know something I hadn't even really really considered is that you know even if yeah even if the city does get what they want, they'll need to do something very quickly. So you're also keeping an eye on a high profile race for sheriff. What's happening there? Sheriff Gusman is is up for re-election uh, this year. Um, he has a, a number of challengers, the, the you know, highest profile being Susan Hudson, who is the, um, has been the head of the independent police monitor for, for some years before she uh, resigned to, to run against uh, Sheriff Gusman. And she is presenting herself as sort of a progressive alternative to Sheriff Gusman. She's, she's kind of talked about her similarities to Jason Williams, who, who was elected DA in the previous election cycle. And you know, notably, has come out in opposition to to phase three, this this uh, jail building that, that Sheriff Gusman is, has been pushing for for around a decade. All right, thanks, Nick. Thanks. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, contributing reporter Jordan Hirsch, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>